Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 74, air date October 23rd, 2015. What makes up a business? People. People. So it's the it's number one thing is who you hire. Yes. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you my background, but I want to give you an interesting problem. I like, since this is a business class, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but you know, I've done six businesses now, and when you start a startup business, the biggest thing is who you hire. And you may come across this very interesting problem. So let's look at this problem here. Let's look at your hiring, your, you want to hire someone, right? And, or you, let's not even say hiring, let's say you've hired somebody. And it's very hard to hire people, by the way. It's the, I don't know if you know the numbers out there, for every person you hire, um, there's a percentage of people you actually should keep, and you should fire also. It's one out of three, typically. For three people you hire, you're lucky if you get one. And some people put it five out of eight. But just to give you an idea that you need to know how to also let go of people. So here's the interesting um, problem. Let's say you have hired someone, and you can hire someone who can be very competent, right? Let's put competent here. And you could also have hired someone you later find out they're pretty incompetent, right? So that could be two extremes. You also hire someone and you find out they could have a lot of integrity, right? High integrity. Or you could you later find out someone with low integrity. And I'll define what these are. So high integrity person is, you know, you can count on them, they're very honest, they don't backbite, they don't gossip, right? They're very straight, they say, they do what they mean, all those very important values. Low integrity, this is how we used to define it, someone who talks behind people's back, they cause a lot of gossip, you don't know what the hell's going on when you're not there with this kind of person, right? They may sell stuff without telling people what they're buying, low integrity. Incompetent people, I think it's pretty straightforward, right? You, you hire someone, you tell them to write, and you find out they're writing emails that are just like spelling mistakes or they're writing code that doesn't work, right? Competent persons, I'm not, that's sort of self-explanatory. So here's your question. You've hired somebody, okay, who's highly competent, very competent, all right? Very, very competent, and typically true of salespeople, and you're just a startup company, very competent, and but they have no integrity and you're just a five-person startup, right? And you need money. On the other hand, you have someone who's incompetent, but they have a lot of integrity. What do you do? So if we found someone, here, here's a problem. When you start a company, three, four people, one bad apple can destroy you. One bad apple. So if we had, and it's a very alluring thing, right? Because you're a startup and you need money. But that person can destroy a company nine out of nine times. So what we used to do is if we used to find someone with really low integrity and they were very competent and we, we let's say caught them stealing or whatever, doing something horrible, they would be fired on the spot. The incompetent person who had high integrity, we'd give them 60 days. We'd say, look, we really like you. you know, we hired you to do this. 
it looks like you can't, but we want to help you in this role, and we give them training. And then if they still couldn't do it, we'd let them go. The reason I want to share that with you is this is a real problem that you, that you will face, and that can determine the success of a company or its utter failure, particularly when it's small. So anyway, that was a quick quiz. And the re so, so you know, a lot of these things um, on how you do stuff and how you work with people is what really makes a business operate. And I was fortunate because when I was at Livingston High School, I learned a lot of that um, because you know, I, you know, uh, my parents, like you said, came from an environment tremendously good value system, right? You work hard, resourcefulness. Um, you know, you you do what's right, and that was important. Livingston High School had a phenomenal set of teachers who taught me that. I mean, we had teachers who would work here and then had other jobs, right? You know, because the school system wasn't paying teachers that much. So, uh, and they were phenomenal teachers. So there was always this sense of, you know, uh, you know, you take responsibility what you do, do great work. And those are things that are very, very important. Because if you can find five people like that to form a company, you can do amazing things. The ability to create something and serve this person that you call the customer. So what I'm saying is, if you're going to do a business, you have to know who the customer is. When I created email, the customer wasn't a nerd; they weren't a technical person, right? Because computers in those days, in 1978, was for scientists and engineers. But there was this other group of people called the secretary, who sat at a desktop. You know, it was a very sexist world in those days, women were relegated just to doing that. They had a typewriter, they would type memos for their boss, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool, and the challenge was, could you take this person who was not given access to the computer, the computer was this mainframe thing, you know, people with little pocket protectors, those are the guys that use that. So could you take this woman, frankly, who never had access to use that, and could you bridge those worlds? So there was a customer there. So the answer to your question is, if you're going to do a business, you have to ultimately you're serving somebody, and do you want to serve that person? Are you are you motivated to change that person's life in a very different way, impact them? And it doesn't have to be big, but it could be something very small. But it's ultimately who is the customer. Email really came out of serving this customer, who was an ordinary person, um, was not an end user, to move that person from the typewriter to the keyboard. So that was my customer. In the case of what I'm doing now, the customer really is everyone because I want to revolutionize health. We are in a world right now, we have people are eating a lot of craps, cancer is skyrocketing, the amount of pharmaceutical, the GMOs in the soil is destroying the world and there has to be a different way to do this and the technology that I have can validate traditional medicine systems that people have been practicing for 5,000 years. They actually are the way that we should go back to. So I'm motivated by wanting to change the world. But you got to find out what you really you're, you're interested in, and it could be anything. You, you may really love flowers, you know. You may want to start a flower shop at school, but you got to find out what really you're interested in. There's so much money out there, by the way. A lot of people with a lot of money. So if you really have an idea, you'll always have money. So never worry about money. There are three ways that human beings make decisions. One is through instinct, like animal instinct. Animals do that. Another is through, you do intelligence, right? Like you actually use your, well, maybe I'll get the person's resume, you know, I'll make sure they're coming from a good school. You know, you do all these checks, right? Checks and balances. That's the, and then the third part is intuition. 
And that is a faculty that all of us have. It's not something that's just magical. It's in, in many systems of, ancient systems of medicine, they used to say, you actually have these three faculties, the instinctual brain, the intellectual brain, which is also important, and then the, the intuitive brain. And you have to build that intuitive capability, which comes with time. But that's where you have to be able, I mean, it's gonna sound weird to you, but you have to learn how to sit quietly and listen to yourself. And when you can listen to yourself, you can start seeing the world for what it is, without all the distractions. Because sometimes people may say, you, know, I gotta, you should really hire this person, they're really good. But if your gut doesn't tell you that, it's, you, nine out of 10 times your gut is saying, because it's, it's giving you the right reaction. Now, see, see, this is a very in interesting dynamic we're living in now in the world, that you have people with media who, who there's consultants. People can make their website, their who they are, appear a certain way. And the dynamics that it creates is an interesting one, right? So you think what you think you're getting may be completely different. So you have to do all these technical mechanisms, right? To deal with that, like you have to do more checking, to check the resume, all those. That's why I believe a lot of businesses are going to become local again. It's my theory, or global, where you actually can see people face to face, interact with them, because a human gut still has some amazing ability to assess who friends and foes are. You can do these other techniques. I'm not saying they're, but but there's an advantage you have if you see someone face to face. Last closing, I want to tell you this is, you know, when Facebook did its analysis, right? You know how some people have like 3,000 friends on Facebook. You know, when they did the analysis, you know how many true friends the average person has? Like real friends? You know what the number is? 30? 12? Nope. It's, it's six. And it turns out that's the same number of friends that people had in old rural villages. You knew about six really good people. So that pretty much says a lot, right? So even in companies, it turns out, you know, you have one person, you have about five people you could work with. It gets a little bit unmanageable beyond that. Because you never get a chance to build this relationship. That computing has gone through this entire spectrum where it began where those who use computers had to be highly technically trained people. Right? It wasn't for everyone, right? So you had to go through a tremendous amount of training. Uh, it, the whole um, climate, the ecosystem was you had to look a certain way, right? When I created the first email system, the guy I worked with, he used to wear a lab coat. Right? And he used to look like a mad scientist, right? So the concept of people working with computers was very segregated into certain people because you had to have all this technical capability to work with computers. So in 1978, when people worked with computers, it was the same world, right? And there was a big dichotomy between um, the people who could work with this machine and ordinary people. So that's if you take yourself back. 36 years, so think about a world where not everyone could touch that thing, right? In fact, there was no such thing. You have more power in that one device right now than you have in the mainframes we had, right? A hundred times more, a thousand times more. So in that environment, you know, um, what you, so, so what you're able to do now in manipulating computers, those people weren't even able, couldn't even conceive of thinking. So when I was at Livingston High School, we, I think we had a small little teletype device downstairs. That was a computer device we had. In those days, you had to do punch cards. It was a very onerous task. You had to get a tremendous amount of training. So for me, um, when I, I, I finished up calculus when I was in 10th grade here, 
So I didn't have at that time any other math courses to take. So I ended up going to New York University on the summer program. And I learned six different programming languages. And seven, uh, six programming languages, you know, they, they were all in punch cards. And then I also learned digital circuitry. When I finished that, Livingston High School arranged a special program for me where I could actually do an independent study travel to Newark, New Jersey. At that time, the medical school there had just set up um, mainframe computers in four locations. They were networked. There was no internet. People actually laid down their own cable, you know, through modems. And these four campuses were networked together. But even at that time, in 78, what did they use computers for? Again, it was for batch processing of data, right? To store records. Again, you needed these very highly trained technical people. So the challenge I was given was the, was the challenge, could you take these very non-technical people, secretaries, primarily women, who worked not on this kind of desktop, a desktop where you didn't have a keyboard, but they literally had a physical typewriter. On their desktop was literally a box. It was called inbox. Mail would come into this inbox. There was another box called an outbox. There's a box called drafts. These were physical boxes. Next to them was a trash can. You know, they had physical paper. There was carbon paper. Um, carbon copy literally meant you took two pieces of paper. In between the paper is a piece of carbon paper. When you typed, it went through paper one, and you got a carbon copy. So this is the way mail was processed in this inner office mail environment of the 1970s. And that system, by the way, wasn't limited to that medical college. It was a system that was used all over the world, from the Prime Minister of India to the, you know, uh, wherever the president was, Nixon at that time. That was called the inner office mail system. And that world was completely separate from the world of people using these, you know, wearing their white, you know, lab coats using these mainframe computers. So the challenge I was given was could you take these people who had never used a computer before, secretaries, and could you create an electronic version of that? Had I learned to code? Yeah. Oh, so I got lucky because in 1978, remember I said I, 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 I finished all the math classes here? So my, a friend of mine's mom's friend had seen this little ad, I think it was in the New York Times, said, there was a little ad that said that this professor at New York University was gonna select 40 students because he was think, thinking that one day you would need programmers and that if you applied, you would get selected to go to NYU and learn software programming. And so, and I think it was only, you had to be a, you had to be a junior and I was a sophomore, so I was ineligible. But because I completed calculus and all, they, they sort of considered me in a different way. So I, so I got accepted and I used to take the train. My mom would drop me off, I think, 5 or 6 a.m. In, in Newark. And I used to take the train into um, uh, Greenwich Village, where NYU was, go from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. study and came back. So I learned, actually, programming at a university. I got lucky. Um, were you like a straight-A student growing up? A straight-A student. Well, I was very competitive. In this, and then I'll tell you why I was competitive. It was not, it was, it was, you gotta understand, in 1978, when my family moved here, first of all, my, when my family moved here, they, my parents are immigrants from India. So when we came here, uh, we moved to Patterson, New Jersey, one of the poorest cities. And then my parents, whatever money they earned, they would keep moving up we would move probably every two years. So we went from Patterson to Clifton, Persephone, and then here, and coming to Livingston was a big thing. 
And I was frankly nervous because it was predominantly all white, you know, very wealthy, and we were one of the, we were, I think my sister and I were probably the first Indians in, in Livingston. And it was 4,000 kids then. It was a very, very large school system. So, but I was motivated because it wasn't about me doing well. I saw how much my parents went, went to, and then when I used to go back to India, how people had very little. So I was motivated to excel, not for me, not to just prove something, because I felt the opportunity I had was pretty significant. So I did pretty well. I think I graduated number two out of those thousand students, so not bad. Not bad. But it, it was a motive, it was, it was really this young kid was very motivated because he knew what he had, you know? Because when I used to go back to India, I used to see what other people did not have. And I still see that, yeah. What was my dream job? It's a great question. You know, I actually love design. I really love, you know, I have, an, you know, I have also a degree in architecture and visual, visual design. So a lot of what I do, you know, when you, if you look at your screens on your computer, how many people have iPhones here? Most people? How many people have Androids? Okay. So if you look at these devices, right, the reason people like these devices is a user interface, right, how easy it's to use, and that's a, so I love that field actually, design. I love architecture, art, and design because particularly user interface design is because it's not only how it looks visually, but it actually has to have functional value. You know, it's like doing interior design in a home. So I still, I, I'm doing my dream job, you know, in the sense that I still bring that aspect of design uh, to everything I do because what we create has to be usable by end, end users. My motivation um, in anything I did was to really medicine, how to heal people. So when I came to the United States, I actually wanted to do medicine. And when I went to that medical school at University of Medicine Dentistry, it was actually to do medical research. So the aspect of using computers was actually a diversion, frankly. But later on, I brought back the use of computers into medicine. That's what I'm doing right now. So we've created, as, as um, Jeremy said, a technology for actually using computers to model the human cell and then use that to model disease so we can model certain functions on the computer so we don't have to do it on animals. But the interest came from medicine. I've met Bill Gates a long, long time ago. I, I didn't have the fortune to meet Steve Jobs. But you, you ever, you're here, there's a very interesting video, I think you can find it on YouTube, that Steve Jobs did. It's, it's like a very informal video he was very young and he says something interesting he goes you know one day I woke up and I looked at everything around me and I realized that everything around me was created by someone else right so you're born into this world you think you owe some so much to the history before you but you realize that everything around you was created someone had an idea and they created it and that idea compelled him to realize that he could create anything part of what you'll find is that the small businesses that you're doing, the values that you learn how to do it, are far more interesting than, in fact, large businesses today. And the motivations that drive those businesses, in many ways, I could argue, have put the world in this kind of state. Because the thing that drives them, there's a theory that what drives people to create is the desire to make tons of money. And I would argue with you that the greatest innovations of the world did not come from that. And the people who start the greatest businesses are not driven to create a ton of money, they're actually they, they actually desire to be in a collaborative world and to help people and to change the world through that process. So, 
my journey at Livingston High School really began in this environment of tremendous support, you know, tremendous uh, desire for excellence. You know, very competitive environment here, right? We, you live in relatively a very wealthy neighborhood. You know, when my family came here, we moved to Patterson, New Jersey. It's one of the poorest cities. And my parents, as immigrant parents, worked very hard to basically get access to the educational system. So what you have and the access you have is, you know, you're part of 0.0000000001% of the human population. And you should uh, value that and take advantage of it. So, I mean, I'll, I want to, we'll have a discussion here. But that's what I wanted to share with you, and I could talk to you more about businesses I've done. You know, we just, I've done six companies. We just started a new company called Cytosol. And we frankly don't want it to be big. We're trying to keep it small. We, uh, but the idea is big because we can model the human cell on the computer, and we're able to uh, use that technology without killing animals to come up with new formulations and actually validate the importance of lifestyle, eating well, nutraceuticals and supplements to completely change the direction of, of, of the way health is done today. You actually had to get in there and write this code. The code only had very little memory to run in, so you had tremendous amounts of challenges. And so email got created out of that, but the circumstances in which email got created out of was a phenomenal group of teachers at Livingston High School who changed the rules so I could travel to Newark a great mentor, a supportive family, and in that ecosystem is where email was born. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is that email, tech, big technologies, there's a theory that big technologies need to come from big institutions. And the fact is email was invented by a Livingston High School student in 1978 who did it not for fame, not for fortune, but did it primarily because he was motivated to do something different and bridge these worlds. That's what email is. Email was the first end user application. It was easy to use. And that's not something you should, you should diminish in any way because if you think about what Steve Jobs did was before Jobs created the computer, you know how you, you, know how you get a, you guys know how you had a computer at home? You literally had to go to Radio Shack. You'd buy these parts and you'd put them together and you'd create your own computer. So he wanted to move that process, which is a very technical process, to a simple process. And that itself is a very important aspect of innovation. So the drag and drop thing you're using, that you used to do, you know, you're, you're learning to program it, I can tell you that to get to that level, that itself is a huge innovation for, to, to, to use the tool that you're doing. So that's what email was, and my journey, you know, in programming as, a, as both an inventor and a scientist really started at Livingston High School. And what I want to compel on all of you is, that I shared this in this other class, that you're literally, you know, probably 0.0000000001% of the human population. I don't know if you know what I mean by that. There's, you know, six, six, seven, seven point two billion yeah. people in the world. Uh, by the way, 50% of the world's population is now below the age of 25. I don't know if you, I don't know if you knew, knew that. And of that world population, the amount of access that you have is pretty phenomenal. And I can honestly say that the education I got at Livingston High School, the fundamentals was far better than MIT. No question about it. And I'm sure that the, the stuff that you're learning here today is pretty significant because Livingston High School really manufactures, believe it or not, amazing students that these universities really get. They get, they, they get to put their brand label on. So what I can 
challenge you to do is take advantage of what you guys have got here because it's a, it's a tremendous amount. And, uh, you know, email and TV were both created by 14-year-old kids in, before they went to big institutions. And the things you guys can invent in 2014 is limitless. And really think about that, what, what, you, what you're capable of doing as an individual in this environment that you have.